Do you ever think about what motivates you to do the things that you do in life? I mean, things like, like, why do you go to work on Monday morning? I mean, there's got to be some motivation to do that. Maybe it's because you need money to be able to pay for things. Maybe it's because uh, your identity is wrapped up in your job. If you didn't go to work, you would really wrestle with who you are. Maybe it's because, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. My dad told me to go to work, and so I go to work. I don't really know anything other than that. I mean, why do you spend time with friends? Maybe because you like your friends. That's a good reason to spend time with them, because you enjoy their company, because you want to be with people. You know, when it comes to doing something, I think there's a difference between having good intentions and a heart-level motivation to do something. I can have good intentions to go to the gym, but I don't actually do it, which is very true for me because I don't have a heart-level motivation to actually want to go to the gym, to desire to do it, to make time for it. See, heart-level motivations, they lead us to action. Good intentions lead us nowhere. Well, last week, as Alan mentioned, we started a seven-week sermon series called Sent, and this series is all about local mission. We want our church to be focused on taking the message of the gospel, our hope in Christ, to Fairfax, to Northern Virginia, to this whole D.C. metro region, so that more people, more people might know the saving grace of God that comes to us in and through Christ. And if you missed the sermon from last week, I'd really encourage you to go online and listen to it because it kind of sets up what this next seven weeks is going to be all about. But one of the key things that we said last week is, is that if we are followers of Christ, no matter how much you know, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, how long you've known Jesus, even if it was just today that you met Christ for the first time, that God has called you to engage, to participate in his mission to bring the good news of Jesus to people all over the place. We looked at last week, it says that Jesus tells us as the Father sent him, so he sends us out. And it's crazy to think about that God in his sovereignty, that God in his providence decided to use us, his church, you and me, to take this message to our neighbors, to take this message to the world. A message of peace, of hope, of reconciliation and redemption. I mean, that's an amazing thing if we really think about it. It's only a testimony of God's grace that he would use us to take that message out. Well, today we're going to look at another aspect of the mission of God that I think that if we miss this, if we don't pay attention to this, if we don't really stop to think about this, that we will short circuit God's call for us to be on mission as individuals and as a church. If we skip over this, if we don't pay attention to it, we are not going to do what God has called us to do. We may have good intentions, but not a heart-level motivation to be on mission. So what is this heart-level motivation that we need to have? In a word, it's love. And so where we're going to look this morning, I think one of the best places that we can start to look at is maybe perhaps one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. But before we jump into that, let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Father, we give you thanks that we can uh, open up your word, and from beginning to end, your word is very clear to us, Lord, that you desire to redeem people, that you are a God of grace and mercy, who is calling people to himself, people from every tribe, from every language, from every nation, and Lord, that you pour out your grace on your people, and then send your people out with this message of grace, so that more people might be brought into the family of God. This morning, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you would help our minds and our hearts to be attentive this morning, that your spirit would speak very clearly and directly to us as individuals as we sit in our seats and to us as a church, as a family, as a community together. 
Lord, I continue to pray. I ask, Lord, that you would stir us. Lord, that we would just be burdened to take the message of the gospel to our neighbors and our coworkers, our family and our friends. And Lord, we want to see awakening. We want to see revival in this area. But Lord, I pray that it start in our church. Lord, stir our hearts today as we open up your word. Spirit, move in us today. Bring about transformation today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bible, and we are going to be in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John, again, is one of the uh, four gospels that tells the life and the story and the life of Jesus. And so if you need to flip a little bit to look for that, go ahead and do that. But we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. John says this in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And it's worth breaking these few verses down because for many of us, whether we are followers of Christ or not, have perhaps heard this verse before. Most of us have at least heard of this verse, even if we don't know the content of it. And so what I want us this morning, maybe if this is the first time you've actually heard what John 3.16 says, or you've heard it a million times, I want us to take some time to look at it this morning because what it says, what it communicates to us is so important for us as we think about mission. So let's get into it. For God so loved the world. Man, we have to stop right there. For God so loved the world. I mean, it's crazy to think about this. God, the eternal holy creator and sustainer of all things, loves the world. Now, God's love for the world is not about the loveliness of the world. It's not about the fact that, man, the world is so beautiful. The world is so lovely that God, why would it be surprising for us if God didn't love the world? That's not what's going on here. This is about the character of God. In 1 John chapter 4, John tells us in another letter that he writes that God is love. This is who he is. It's at the core of his being. God's love for the world is not admirable because of how big the world is. It's not admirable because of how many people are in the world. It's like, man, God loves the whole world. That's crazy. It's so huge. No, it's admirable that God loves the world because of how jacked up and rebellious the world is. How against God the world is. I mean, what is the state of this world that God so loves? Well, a word that scripture uses to define the state of the world is lost. The world is lost. It lives in the midst of lostness. The effects of our rebellion against God, the way that we live life as opposed to God, being opposed to him, living for ourselves. God defines that through his word as being lost. Now, if we call someone lost, that's not a condemning word. It's not a statement about their knowledge. It's not a statement about understanding. In fact, I think when we refer to someone as lost, when we look at our world and say our world is lost, I think it's a gracious word. It's a loving word. If my son Owen is lost somewhere in Fairfax, that's not a judgment on my son. It's a description of his reality. It's a statement of value. I care about him. I don't want him to be lost. I want him to be found. I long for his reality to change. Why? Because I love him. When scripture talks about people being lost, it's because God loves them and wants to bring them back to himself that they might be found. 
And so when we as a church talk about someone being lost, I hope it should be always an indication of our love for someone who doesn't yet know Christ. Our desire to see them found by God. I mean, that's what's crazy about God saying that he loves the world. The world is lost and is fine being lost. Running away from God, living its own way. But this holy God, this perfect God we are talking about, he loves this unholy and rebellious world. That should blow our minds. But man, it gets even crazier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See, God's love for the world is not sentimental love. It's love that led to specific action. He loved the world so much that he willingly gave his only son on behalf of the world. God gave his only son. He relinquished his son for the world. And what did he give his only son to do? John tells us again in another one of his letters. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world. For what purpose? So that we might live through him. That we might have life through him. And then John says this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. We're in rebellion against God. We don't love God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now propitiation is a big word. It's not a word we hear or use very often, but it's an important word. It means that Jesus, the son of God, came. And he came for the purpose of bearing the wrath of God. God's just wrath against sin. Jesus came and went and died on a cross and God poured out his wrath for the sin and rebellion of the world on Jesus. Jesus satisfied this just and righteous wrath. That's what it means that he was a propitiation. God's wrath, his righteous wrath was satisfied in Christ on the cross. God loves the world so much that he gave his son as a sacrifice to rescue the world. A world that has no desire to know him. No desire to follow him. God loved the world enough to send his son to rescue it. Jesus himself says, I came to seek and to save the lost. And he did this by coming and laying down his life for us. The world was not lovely. The world was not worthy. It wasn't admirable. It didn't have potential. The world was dead in its sin and rebellion. And we, all of us, are included in this. But see the love that the Father has lavished on us. Romans 5, 8 tells us that while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in rebellion, while we were still running away from God, he sent his son not just to say, hey guys, would you come over here and hang out with me? No, he sacrificed his life for us. That is his love on display As one commentator says, his love is not a vague, sentimental feeling, but it's a love that costs. God has acted out of love in order to rescue a world that's in rebellion against him. That is ridiculous. That is mind-blowing kind of love. It should almost be incomprehensible for us to even try and stop and think about what that actually means, that God would do that. But again, it's the core of who he is. It's a characteristic of God. He is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, a world in rebellion against a holy God deserves eternal punishment. When you rebel against an eternal holy God, what comes from that, the consequence of that is punishment. 
When John says perish, he means an eternal, an eternal punishment, which is described as an eternal death. One pastor says that is, this eternal death is that we're always dying but never dead. This is the reality. If we, uh, we receive that punishment that we deserve from God is that we perish. We're separated from God forever, which means that all of us, all of us need to be rescued. Desperately, we need to be rescued. And that's the whole point of this. The love of God is manifest for the world and that he has not given us what we deserve. He has not given us what we deserve, but he has provided a way of rescue. See, I think a lot of times we can get tripped up over the idea that there is only one way to God. Maybe you wrestle with that. That there's only one way for you to be reconciled to God, for you to know God. We don't like that. We think, man, that's, a, that's such a myopic view of God. That's such a narrow-minded focus of God. And we say, well, how can there only be one way? But I think that's the wrong question for us to be asking. I think the thing that should be hard for us to believe, the question that should be hard for us to understand is, why is there any way to God? Not why is there only one way to God? Man, God's not obligated to save anyone. He's not obligated to redeem anyone's life, but because of his love, he makes a way. God doesn't just spare us our life. He gives us eternal life through the death and resurrection of his son. He doesn't just say, I'm going to spare your life in this temporal life that you live. No, he says, I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to bring you into a relationship with me forever as my son, as my daughter. How do we get this? How do we get this eternal life by cleaning ourselves up? By knowing lots of theology, by being a really good person? No, it's by believing that you need to be rescued. By believing that Christ's life, death, and resurrection are the only way for you to be rescued. Believing in Jesus is trusting that holy God, when he looks at you now, no longer sees your unrighteous, rebellious life, but he looks at you and sees Christ's perfect, righteous life. Because Christ took on your sin and gave you his perfect life. This means that true faith and true believing is not saying, well, I don't really want to spend an eternity in hell, so I guess I'll believe in Jesus. No, true faith and true believing is saying, I want to be with God, but I can't on my own. And I recognize that I so desperately need Jesus, who paid for my sin, freeing me from its bondage and condemnation. That I desire to live for God and his glory and not myself any longer. It's the cry of have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And the glorious good news of John 3.16 tells us very clearly that God desires to give mercy to you. God desires to give salvation and redemption to you because he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Man, that is amazing news. Church, do we realize the great love that God has for us? Not because we were lovable. Not because we were great. Not because we'd figured it all out. Not because we'd be a good addition to God's family or team. But only, only because of his unchanging and eternal character and his great love. And let me say this morning, man, if you don't yet know Christ... If you have not clearly believed in Jesus, clearly and definitively trusted in Jesus to receive forgiveness for your sin and eternal life. Like I said, not just to avoid hell, but because you want to know God, because you want to be with God. Let me call you to believe in Christ now, right now at this time. I mean, there's no, there's no better time for you to do that. No one's guaranteed tomorrow. 
But that offer is extended to you now that you would turn away from living life for you and turn instead and fall on the grace of God in Christ. Man, would you do that this morning if you haven't done that before? If you're just hanging out on the edge, checking out who Jesus is, would you jump in? Jump in and trust Christ. And that's why we're here. If you want to know more about what that means, please come talk to someone. That's why this church is here, because we want to see more people, more and more people all over this area know Jesus. And check out what John says in verse 17. Just to, I think just to reiterate what the Father has sent the Son to do. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Just to make sure that you understand what his love is. His love is that he sent his son to save you. He didn't send his son to beat beat up on you, to scold you, to make you feel bad, to give you a bunch of rules and regulations to follow. He sent his son to save the world because he loves the world. John 3, 16 and 17 is a picture of missional love. Missional is kind of a made up word. It's an adjective to describe a person as having kind of a, a mission focus. That every aspect of their life, that what they do is about the mission of God, is seeing the mission of God go forward. All their life, their activities, their function as a person are centered around participating in the rescue plan of God. That's what it means to be missional. When we say that word, if we want to be a missional church, that means that we are participating in the mission of God. Well, this is a picture of missional love because God is missional. God loved God came to save, then his missional love leads to action. But maybe you're thinking, why in the world? That's great. No, I mean, that, that is a, this is a good thing to look at. It's good to reflect on the, the beauty of this picture that's laid out in John three sixteen and 17. It's good to understand the depth of God's love for us. But what in the world does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with you? What does it have to do with our church being on mission? Taking the message of the gospel to people all over this area. I think it matters a great deal. Love for the world is the motivation for the mission of God. Love for the world is the motivation for the mission of God. And if the Father's mission is Jesus' mission, and Jesus' mission is our mission, then participating in God's rescue plan for humanity as ambassadors for Jesus must be motivated by love for those who are lost and separated by God, from God. It it has to be motivated by love. It can't be good intentions. It has to be because we genuinely love someone. We genuinely care about them as a person, as a friend. Why are we supposed to love lost people? Because God loves lost people. Why are we supposed to get involved in the lives of lost people? Because God got involved in your life. Because God got involved in my life, not remaining distant from you. And don't forget what Jesus says to us that we looked at last week. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. As, like, in the same manner and way and with the same purpose that the Father sent me. Out of his love for the world, so I am sending you. We are sent as Jesus is sent. We go as Jesus goes with the same message and the same motivation. Love. Sojourn, I want us as a church, as a community, as individuals, and as a group together, I want us to truly love lost people. I don't want us just to have good intentions. 
I want us at a heart level, to have a heart level motivation that is rooted in love for God and love for others. Isn't that what we're called to do? Jesus says the two greatest commandments that we are to follow are to love God and to love others. Love God and love others. And if we have the only message of true, lasting, eternal hope for a dead, dying, and dark world, how can we say that we're loving God and loving others if we're not telling other people about Jesus? That's not loving for us to not tell someone else about Christ. See, loving the name of Christ inherently requires that we love lost people. Because loving the name of Christ means that we want to see the name of Christ exalted in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our city, in our state, and in our world. And in order for this to take place, we don't legislate prayer in the public schools. We don't hang the Ten Commandments up in courthouses. We bring the gospel to those who don't yet believe it. And ask that the Spirit would give people ears to hear and eyes to see. People who were created in the image of God. Because we care for them. Because we love them. Man, Jesus got this. Who did Jesus spend most of his time with? He spent a lot of time with his disciples. And he was teaching them about the Father. What it meant to know him and follow after him. And he spent a whole lot of time with people who were seeking. And people who were doubting. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. This was supposed to be an insult thrown at him by the Pharisees. These self-righteous people who thought they had it all together and didn't love a lost world. In fact, they prided themselves on separating themselves from the world. And they said, Jesus, you, you friend of sinners. And it was supposed to be an insult for him. I mean, I think it's the greatest compliment that he could get. The greatest praise that he could have gotten. Why? Because again, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. If Jesus is not a friend of sinners, then he is not doing the mission of God. Are you a friend of sinners? Is Sojourn Church a friend of sinners? Seekers, doubters. And I hope that that's what our church looks like. I hope that this is a welcome place and a welcome community that when people hear the name of Sojourn Church, it's not about us. But when they hear that name, they think, man, that church loves lost people. We're not going to be effective on mission with good intentions, but only a heart motivation, a heart level motivation of love for the people around us. Amen, Lord, I pray. I pray to the Lord that he would make it so. I pray that that would be the reality for our church. See, I think sometimes we are ineffective on mission because we only have good intentions and not a genuine love. I think we struggle to love lost people in the lost world around us for a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons that we struggle to love lost people is because we have a disdain for the effects of lostness. We look at the, round, the world around us and we shake our heads at certain types of behavior and abuses. An election comes around and our neighbors put political signs in our yard and we shake our heads. We see bumper stickers on cars and we shake our heads. We flip on the news and see the moral decay of our country and we shake our heads. We see the effects of brokenness and we roll our eyes and think, well, that's what happens when you live life like that. But why in the world would you or I ever think that anyone is ever going to live their life differently if they live their lives differently if they don't know Jesus as Lord? 
God so loved the world, this world steeped in rebellion and sin, that he sent his son to save it. He didn't stand at a distance and shake his head. He didn't stand at a distance and roll his eyes. He made a way to bring about redemption. As one commentator says, their sins he cannot love, but he loves their souls. Man, do you? Do you love the souls of the people around you? Maybe you see the effects of lostness and brokenness in their lives, but do you love that person enough to go and develop a relationship, spend time with them, and tell them about Jesus? So I think one of the reasons is because we have a disdain for the the effects of lostness. I think the other reason that we struggle to genuinely love lost people is just because of apathy and laziness. I think this is the struggle for most of us. When we stop and we're going through the day-to-day of life, do we ever stop to, to think, do we really believe in the reality of heaven and hell? That apart from Christ, people will spend an eternity suffering the consequences of their rebellion and separated from God. We can drive down the road, ride on the metro, sit in class, sit in an office, look at our neighbors and do nothing and say nothing because we're just plain apathetic to the eternal realities of life and death. There's no urgency. We don't care. We love our lives more than anything else. I think if we're real honest, that's the, 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 the core of our apathy, the core of our laziness is we say, man, I love my life more than I love my neighbor's soul. I love my comfort. I love my pleasure. I love the way that things go for me more than I am willing to go and talk to somebody about Jesus. The man at the core of that, that is wickedness. Because it does not exemplify the missional love of our missional God. God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. Man, this is me. When I think about why I struggle to love lost people, to love a lost world, this is the reason. It's because of my apathy. It's because of my laziness. It's so easy for me to be around people all the time, but be so wrapped up in my own little world in life that I never raise my head up enough. I never raise my eyes up enough to see the brokenness around me or be willing to engage the brokenness around me. But God is graciously grinding this into me. And I mean that he is grinding it into me. That I sit and I think about how there's been so many opportunities, so many times that I just wasn't willing to stop and say, I want to love this person We just moved to a new neighborhood in the city of Fairfax. And every night as we've been there, I pray with Owen and I pray with Amy. And just very simply, Lord, help us to know our neighbors and tell them about Jesus. Help us to really know them. Not just know about them, not just know their names, but really know them. And share my life with them. I want to say with the psalmist, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And I want to be broken for the brokenness of my city. I want us as a church to be broken for the brokenness of our city. That we would look around us, lift our eyes up enough and weep. Because people don't know Christ. That's only going to come if you really, genuinely, truly love lost people. God loves this broken world. 
God sent his son to save it and to save us. And now he sends us out to tell the world, but we are not going to go if we don't have love. So what does it look like for us to cultivate love for the lost? And again, when I say lost, I'm not saying that in a condemning, as a condemning statement. I'm not saying that from a place of self-righteousness. It's a statement of value. It's a statement rooted in love because we want to see people's eternal reality changed. So what can we do to cultivate missional love? The first thing we can do is something that I think the Apostle Paul calls us to do and something that we see him do in his own life. And that's to remember who you were and who you are now. Remember who you were and who you are now. It's what Alan was talking about when we were doing our time of confession. Just to stop and remember the reality of your life before Christ and your life after Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives this glorious statement about the gospel, talking about what God has done for us in Christ, how he's given us new life in Christ. And it's very similar to what we're looking at here in John 3.16. But right after he does this, in verse 11 through 13, Paul says this, Therefore, therefore, in light of the glorious good news of the gospel, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh... Call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember that. But then he says, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember, remember your life apart from Christ. And maybe you're sitting there saying, well, man, it's hard for me to remember that because I, I, I came to follow Jesus at a young age. And I can't really remember what life was like apart from Christ before that. Well, let me first say, praise God. Praise God that he poured out his grace on you at a young age. There's nothing to be ashamed about, and that is a, it's a place of worship for you to say, praise God that he saved me. But you can still ask yourself the question, what would your life be like if God had not graciously rescued you? What would your life look like if he had not called you to himself through Christ? I know for some of you, if you're honest, you'd say, man, I probably wouldn't even be alive today if Jesus hadn't saved me. We remember that we were lost that we were strangers with no hope. But God in his love came to us and rescued us. That someone loved us enough to tell us about the hope that comes in Christ. Maybe it was a, a parent, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, a roommate. We're going through John 3.16 rehearsing the gospel because we need to remember that great love that the Father has lavished on us. We need to remember our desperate state before someone told us the good news that there is forgiveness, that there is hope, that there is life, and it's found in Jesus. We need to remember that apart from Christ, we personally would perish, be condemned, and not have eternal life. And when we remember that, that should change the way that we look at a lost and broken world around us. It should change the way we look at it. I think we see that happen to the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 8, he gives this massive gospel throwdown. We read a bunch of it a few weeks ago. But he just goes off talking about the beauty and the reality of the gospel for you and me if we're in Christ. 
And he starts off with these words. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, that's the, that's the reality of the gospel. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you now because the Father loved you enough to send his Son to save you. And he goes on for about 40 more verses saying all kinds of amazing things. And he ends like this. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then you know what Paul says right after that? I mean, he has just gone crazy. I mean, I can see him just like walking around a room, writing this down, just so enamored, so just in worship of God, of his grace in his own life. Do you know what he says right after that? At the beginning of chapter 9, he says this. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. Wait. Paul, you, you just had this glorious treatise on the gospel, and now you say, I have great sorrow. Well, why does he have great sorrow? He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. See, I think what happens is Paul, as he reflects on the gospel and he lifts his eyes up and lifts his head up and looks around him and sees his Jewish brothers and sisters and who people he genuinely loves and cares about who don't yet know Jesus as Lord, it tears him up. He, he can't just move on. He says he's in anguish and he says crazy things like if it was possible for me, I would give up my salvation for them to be saved. He just told us we can't lose our salvation. He says, but if it was possible for me, because I care about them that much, I would give it all up for eternity because I want them to know Jesus. When Paul remembers who he was and who he is now, it changes everything for him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that the love of Christ controls him. It's not his love for Christ, but Christ's love for him. Christ's love for Paul now controls him. And because of this, he can now regard no one according to the flesh. He can't look at anyone the same way anymore. Because of this, he is an ambassador for Jesus, willing to endure all kinds of insane things for the sake of more and more people coming to know the saving grace of God. When the gospel becomes old news for us, it's no wonder that we don't love lost people. Because, man, we've strayed from our first love. And we've taken our eyes off the reality of what God has done for us. But when we do love the gospel, when we see the gospel as the best news for us, we can't look at anyone the same way. When we're driving in traffic, when we're sitting at work, when we are at a restaurant with a waiter or waitress, when we are dealing with frustrating people, when we're dealing with difficult people, it should change the way that we look at them and our heart should break. Because we love them and we want them to know the love of God. God didn't come to those that were easy to love. But he came because he loved. And he sent his only son for us. And he now sends us to tell our neighbors. To sends us to tell them because we love them. Remember who you were and who you are now. Another way that we can cultivate missional love is by engaging and being a real friend. 
Loving lost people like Jesus loves lost people involves movement and action. It involves opening our mouths. What do you do when you really love someone? Right? You go buy two dozen roses and get a heart-shaped box of chocolates once a year that are way overpriced. That's, that's how you love someone, right? No, the way that you love someone, someone that you truly and genuinely love, the way that you love them, you give them your life. You spend time with them. And I'm not just talking about romantic love. If you love your friends, if you love your family, if you genuinely love them, you spend time with them. You share your life with them. If we're going to be effective on mission, if we're going to have genuine love for those who don't yet know Christ, it can't be from a distance. It can't be with lip service, not with a wave across the driveway or the parking lot or the cubicle. We need to really love them, like really love them, like really get involved in their lives, be a real friend, that we want to spend time with them, that they want to spend time with us, that we're not looking at someone as a project, that we're not looking at them and keeping them at an arm's length. We're inviting them into our life and giving our life to them. And this means getting involved in the messiness of life. But God didn't start loving you when you got your life in order. He loved you while you were still a mess. When we truly love someone, we say, man, I'm willing and wanting to be here with you. I'm willing and wanting to walk through life with you. And I do so because I love Christ and he's changed my life and I want him to change yours too. There's a a woman in our congregation uh, named Sarah, I asked her this morning if I could share this story. Um, and, and it's just, a, I love her. I love her story of God's grace in her life. She was working in uh, a school. She's a teacher. And uh, she would say that she uh, was not seeking after God at best. She was doubting at worst. She was a mocker, but she got to know one of her coworkers and noticed something different about one of her coworkers. And she, she wanted to spend time with her and her coworker wanted to spend time with her. And her coworker was just, was just loving on her, inviting Sarah into her life, sharing her life with her and started sharing Christ with her. But Sarah sometimes was antagonistic towards her coworker and antagonistic towards the gospel. But in the midst of this coworker loving her, spending time with her, sharing her life with her, God saved her. Man, that's amazing grace. Sarah would have said she was probably a person that you would look at and say, man, she's too far gone. She has no interest in God. I'm not going to spend time with her. I'm not going to spend time telling her about Jesus. But no one's ever too far gone for the grace of God to save them. God wants to save people. Do we truly want to see people cross over from death to life? Do we love lost people enough to become all things to all men that some, maybe even just one, might be saved? Do we care enough to be real friends with real love who are willing to share our lives and our hearts and open our mouths? And I want that to be the reality for my life. I want that to be the reality for this church that out in the communities and workplaces and schools of Northern Virginia, that we would be on the front lines of loving people who maybe the world says are unlovable. 
And man, if you're this, here this morning and you're, you're just checking out who Jesus is, maybe this is the first time you've ever come to gather with the church. Maybe you're seeking, maybe you're doubting. This might be kind of weird for you. <laughs> but I want you to know from me that I'm thankful that you're here. That we as a church care about you. That we love you, that while we're here is because we want to see you know Christ. And that's the most loving thing that we believe we can do for you is tell you about Jesus. So I'm glad you're here this morning. And if you're checking out who Jesus is, again, please come talk to me. Get involved in our church. You are welcome here to ask questions. You're welcome here to be on this journey, this spiritual journey. And we want to walk with you. And we're not going to get it right all the time. But man, I hope that we're quick to ask for forgiveness when necessary and just to to journey with you because we genuinely want you to know Christ. Sojourn, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved you that he gave his only son to die for you, to be raised for you, that you may have life eternally and be with God forever. So let's go now with the same love, on the same mission, with the same message. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We're going to come to the table this morning now. And I hope that as you come this morning to take the bread and to take the cup, that God's love for you grips your heart. He sent his son who willingly came to lay down his life for you so that you now can be called a son, that you now can be called a daughter of God. So as you take the bread, which is a picture of Christ's body given for you, and you take and drink the cup, which is a picture of Christ's blood shed for you, I hope that you are drawn into a place of worship, praising God for his great grace towards you. And that as you reflect on that this morning, that you will remember that you were once dead in your sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Let that be fuel for your soul. So that as you leave this place this morning, you will go out to engage the world with the light and love of Christ to the glory of God. And if you're not a follower of Jesus... We would just ask that you not come forward to take communion. Because for us, this is a declaration of how desperate we need Jesus. That he is the only way for us to be reconciled to God. And if you don't yet believe that, we don't want you to come forward to take bread and a cup. Because it doesn't really mean anything for you. It doesn't save you. It doesn't do anything for you. Instead, we want you just to hang out in your seat. Because we want you to take Christ. We want you to take Christ. Just pray. Ask God to reveal himself to you. We hope that, that, you'll, that you'll come to know Christ, that you'll trust in Christ, so that next week you can come forward as a brother or sister in Christ and take communion for the first time because you've experienced the love of God. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward and you're ready to receive it and take a small piece of bread and a small cup. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. And you can take it immediately or when you get back to your seat. Sojourn, God is calling people to himself. Let's go and share the message of love and grace with them because we love them. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for the message of your word. That again, from beginning to end, what we see is a picture of your love for humanity. A world that is in rebellion against you. A world that is, desires more to be its own God than it desires to follow after you. But Lord, I thank you that you love the world enough. No, Lord, not even just that you love the world enough. That you love the world so much that you sent your son as a sacrifice for us. To lay down his life for us so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. And Father, I pray that your love for us would compel us to love our neighbors. That your love for us would compel us to love our coworkers and our classmates and the people all around us. That as we reflect on your love for us, then we look around at everyone around us who doesn't yet know you, that our hearts would break, that we would shed tears because we see people don't, have not experienced your grace and your love and your mercy. Lord, help us as people, as individuals in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces to look and genuinely, truly love people. To engage in real life and real friendships with them. And to open up our mouths. To tell them about the grace that is available to them through Christ. Lord, I know that you desire to save people. We pray that we would be a part of seeing people saved. Lord, it's a privilege for us. It's a joy for us. You can save anyone you want apart from us. But Lord, you allow us to be a part of it. Send us out as ambassadors. As ministers of reconciliation. To implore people to be reconciled to God. Not to check a box, not because of statistics, but because we love them at the core of our heart. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your grace in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.